Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Welcome to another episode of Explain to Shane. In today's always connected world, we are surrounded by digital devices that are integrated into our lives. Smartphones, tablets, smart speakers, our cars, the smart appliances in our homes like microwaves and refrigerators. All of these devices, both small and large, provide us with many conveniences. But what happens if the devices malfunction or need to be repaired? There is legislation that has been introduced at both the state and federal level called Right to Repair that we will discuss on today's episode. While consumers can easily operate most devices right out of the box without having to understand the underlying technology, how and where to fix these devices brings up complicated issues around warranties and concerns around device security and possible data loss. To help guide us through these topics, I'm joined today by Jeff Wessling, the Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum. Jeff's research focuses on telecommunications, online content policy, and antitrust. Prior to joining AFF, Jeff was a fellow at the R Street Institute and a law clerk at the Federal Communications Commission. Jeff joins us today as we unbox the complex concerns around right to repair. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Explain to Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You just recently wrote a primer on a, a topic that I actually wrote about last year, and it's, it has raised its head again, and it is this delightful topic of right to repair, which when you first think about it, seems like, of course, I should be able to do whatever I want with my device, which it isn't that you can't, but there maybe are some reasons why you shouldn't. So let's let's kind of walk through these. So you, what harm is providing manuals and third-party repair services to somebody who's who's invested in a piece of digital equipment? Well, I, I think it's important to take a, take a step back a little bit and understand kind of the broader conversation. And what, what we're talking about, obviously, is consumers being able to repair their devices, right? That's something we completely agree with. That's a fun, not a fundamental right, but something that we want consumers to be able to do. But on the other hand, there's a balance to it. And for these companies, for these firms that are actually creating this equipment and selling it, there is a lot of proprietary information. There's network information. There's a lot of important stuff that goes into these devices. And if you're providing the manuals, you're providing the parts to repair it, a lot of the times you're giving away some of that proprietary information. Sometimes you're giving away things you've spent a lot of money to research and to develop, and you're just giving those to the third-party repair vendors. And once that's out in the public, it's easier for your competitors to see what you're doing, to copy your information uh, so there, there's harms, number one, for the companies in, in the broader sense, but there's also harms for consumers if you're going to a repair vendor and they've got these manuals, maybe you can trust them, you think you can trust them, and they don't actually repair the device up to your standards. It causes problems for the device, then you have to go back to the original manufacturer to get it repaired again. And there's just a lot of, of unintended consequences when you think of just, let's just get give out this manual and it will be able to repair it nice and easy. It won't be a problem, but it always comes with some additional problems you didn't really anticipate. That's, that's a valid point. It's an interesting point because I think when I think about it from the consumer perspective, I always remember you, you, there is a lot of intellectual property that, I mean, when they got rid of the, when they changed the headphones and I had to keep explaining to people like, you know, there's really expansive real estate just by moving that little piece or the little button on the bottom. And I imagine all of that's very proprietary and, and interesting to people that do that. I've, I've only tried to go to one a long time ago and it scared me and I, I left. <laughs> it's like, I don't think I'd trust these people to do much, especially not my, my phone's an investment. Well, it is, but also you can, for the most part, trust 
third party vendors. It's not like, like you can't trust them at all. It's just a matter of finding the right third party vendor. And I think that's something that the market can handle. If, if you go out and you're looking for someone to repair your phone and you've got friends who have gone to the same you know, third party vendor and, and they've done a good job repairing their phones, that's the market working. I think the issue kind of comes up, number one, like we talked about when that information gets out and you actually have to give the, the vendor that information, but also just to the extent that, um, you, you know, you, you're, you're going to have some harms to the device that maybe you didn't necessarily know happened when you're the, your friend goes and uses a third party vendor. Maybe they lost some data. They never knew about it. So, you know, the market can't react to that because the information's not out there. Um, sometimes it'll, you know, you go to a third party vendor, they do a good job a couple of times and you, you, you go get the repair the third time. And all of a sudden they make a mistake and it causes the device to, to malfunction and maybe cause harm to you or cause harm to uh, somebody else, especially with, you know, we're talking about your smartphone, but you know, this could be something like, you know, a tractor, medical equipment, something like that, where a failure is not something that's acceptable, right? If you have any kind of failure on like an insulin pump, that's not an acceptable thing. So you go to the third party vendors, it's fine to do that, but it's just, you know, when you're going to those vendors that you don't have the guarantee from the original equipment manufacturer. So you've mentioned third party, but there's a difference between licensed and unlicensed. Mm-hmm. So can you walk us through that? Yeah. So the licensed third party vendors actually have that credibility, that approval from the original equipment manufacturer where they work with the original equipment manufacturer and they've gone through the trainings, they've gone through the the processes to actually understand what's going on in this device and how to repair it correctly. Now there's independent, you know, unlicensed third-party vendors who don't have that relationship with the original equipment manufacturer. And that's not necessarily uh, saying that they can't repair the device. It's just saying you don't have the authority, the credibility that comes with the relationship to that original equipment manufacturer. So it's not that to say that they can't function as a, a valid third-party repair service, but it's just you don't have that certainty as a consumer unless there's they've been around for a long time maybe. They've got a lot of people in your community who use them as, as a repair service and they're well-trusted. I, I don't think that that means uh, just because they're you know an unlicensed or an independent repair service that they just can't be trusted at all, but there is that distinction there. They don't have that same kind of credibility that comes with being a licensed uh, vendor. When you mentioned training, and I think about like the case of the the John Deere tractors, mm-hmm. and I am I am from the great state of Nebraska. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time, but I've seen them. Mm-hmm. Go by, well, I go by them on I eighty. Uh, but so I guess your part of the idea is you you know you say really huge, and that's an exceptionally expensive piece of equipment, especially if anybody saw the one at CES this year. I think Brendan Carr put a picture of it. It was of course massive. Brendan Carr did. It was massive. I think him and Stark are on it together. But um, I, I, I love Commissioner Carr. He's the best. <laughs> but the idea of you know you I mean. Going going back to the days when you just could just tinker with things, we're kind of we're over that. There's so many other things that these devices can do than just move forward or one device forward. But that also means that you have to kind of put up with the complications of yeah. the machine. So I, I, to put this into perspective, I'm kind of a spectrum nerd. I love radio spectrum issues, and we're putting radios into everything. That's just one of those components you're talking about. Your your fridge is going to have a sensor in it that can communicate with your Wi-Fi network all of a sudden, so it can track different you know, quantities of food that's still available. So you know what you need at the store. But to your point, when you add that kind of functionality, this is just one component. There's a ton of different things that go into to the devices these days. But when you add those components, it's not so easy as just, oh, I just got to screw this screw in again and we're, we're good to go and we can get this device back up and running. So, you know, the, the tractor example is a great one, right? They're, they're, the These are just really massive machines that need a lot of of care when you're actually going and repairing them. And what we talked about earlier, whereas you can't really have a failure, there's 
a serious danger to the uh, to the operator if you make a faulty repair. So they they really need to have that reliable repair because it's not something they can just go ahead and and do uh, easily anymore. And and again, you know, there are independent vendors that can repair devices, but you and tractors or whatever equipment we're talking about. But it comes with risk, and that those are kind of some of the trade-offs that you have to consider when you're thinking about these right-to-repair bills, because um, you really want to make sure that, that that we're getting people the repairs they need effectively and cheaply, but also safely and protecting the investments of, of the original equipment manufacturers. When you mentioned healthcare, one of the parts of, and I actually wrote about this about CES, I you know, was the ability to age in place now because of technology and all the really interesting things that were out. And I wasn't, I was kind of forgot, cause I just assumed when I was looking at this, I'm like, oh, I'll be able to go to their websites and learn all this stuff about it. That a lot of them are really kind of pre uh, um, investment, you know, they're looking. And so I, I wish now in hindsight, I would have taken a lot more of their propaganda because I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, you don't have to take the paper. I can find this later. But it was really interesting. Things like the mattress topper that can be an EKG and the idea of not being so evasive with the medical devices. And then, you know, the, the smaller pieces that you, you'll be able to take into your home and be able to monitor things and, and talk to your doctor or telemedicine or just, you know, via your phone. But again, you, those are, those are things that you don't want somebody like messing with and they're like, Oh, so that wasn't my heart rate, you know? Yeah. No, <laughs> it, it gets really dangerous when you start talking about some of these devices, if they aren't working pop properly, if you have, you know, something that's supposed to tell you when to take your medicine and all of a sudden you're getting told to take extra doses, that's not a good thing, right? If you've got a device that's monitoring your heart rate and your heart rate isn't where you know it should be and it's supposed to be sending an alert, but it's not telling that because it had a faulty repair, that's not a good thing. So some of these devices are, are really important that they don't uh, you know, have some kind of malfunction. And you'll see that a lot. I know we'll talk about some of the different state laws, but I know a lot of states are exempting me- uh, medical devices as just a wholesale category of not being included in these right to repair debates. Oh, because- interesting. Now, let's just let's just go there now. So sure. I know you wrote specifically about New York mm-hmm. and they are, are those the type of things that it sound like at the very end of their session, they started excluding or changing up the language. So actually, th- these were the kind of things that were excluded at the beginning. They they generally kind of focus on consumer tech devices in, in New York. Um, and they, they generally don't reach things like, you know, agriculture and, and, and some of the more dangerous repairs, I guess. That's probably a bad way to put it. I don't want to imply that, you know, you can't have some of these devices repaired. But they exclude a lot of those categories from the New York bill because they don't want to risk uh, their consumers getting harmed by it. So they're really focusing on the consumer technology side of things. But you, I know... Uh, some of the state legislatures had specific bills just for agriculture, right? Like uh, I, I believe Arkansas last session and um, I think Kansas had, you know, bills that are just specifically targeted towards ag. I know a couple had were doing all equipment, but we're not including medical equipment in as a part of this bill. Uh, so those are the kind of things that a lot of states are kind of working through right now. But the New York bill in particular, what you were talking about was after they had actually passed the bill from the, the state houses, uh, when the governor went to sign it, they actually made some changes to the bill. And the changes were a little bit um, a little bit more focused on the business side of things So number, and the security side of things. Number one, they made it so that you didn't actually have to uh, provide some of the details about how to essentially get access to the device. uh, If we're talking like a smartphone, if there was going to be a big security implication to it, right? So if, if Apple had to go ahead and give out, you know, like a universal password or something, so the repair services could get into the devices and repair them, 
uh, the, the bill essentially would accept that saying like, no, we don't want to create that kind of vulnerability or make those devices more susceptible to attack. And they also talked, and we can talk about, uh, it's kind of a separate factor, but they also looked at what the cost you're putting on some of these manufacturers is. And originally it was going to make it so you had to re- provide parts. Um, and this is gen- just a general right to repair feature in a lot of these bills. But um, essentially you have to provide the parts, right? Well, if you provide every little part, you can kind of see how things would add up quickly in terms of cost. You got to provide that nail, that screw, that bolt. You have to provide every little thing. What the bill actually went ahead and said, this is not a good policy. This is not good to to add these additional costs. Let's allow them to do assembly. So if you need to repair your screen, you can just buy the screen that comes with the bolts and all the different nails and everything you need to replace the screen, but you can't necessarily buy those individual tiny parts by themselves. And that assembly just saves costs on the back end for these, these manufacturers. At the same time, it does make it a little harder for the repair services because maybe all you needed was that bolt to be replaced, but it's important to kind of strike those balance. And I think that's something that New York really thought about as they were kind of getting this law and over the finish line. So it's, they almost like they show up as a kit because I've, yes. I've had, I've thank God put the protector on and thought I was going to need new glass. And then when they pull it up and it's your protective and not your glass, you're like, think, I can only imagine that's yeah. not good. Uh, you, you reminded me though, that there is the security element, not only the physical security of, you know, the device that we've talked about in the IP, but there's also tons of data on these yeah. devices. And there, there have been stories about, you know, information just escapes on the dark web somehow. And you give somebody, I imagine you have to give them your passcode or some ability, depending on what the repair is, into the device. And, and you also mentioned, I mean, we've been talking about smartphones come to mind and, and tractors, but we have all these things that are going into people's homes that are also going to give them the ability to put their devices online. And this is when I always mention Guilfoyle saved the day with the smart refrigerator in Silicon Valley. So, um, you know, the idea that... Y- the information there does be have a point of vulnerability to it. And I don't know how you actually can work around that when you're handing somebody a device and they need the password to get into it. Well, again, I think it's kind of what I talked about earlier. It's, it's number one, you don't want to force companies to give away that information to allow any third party vendor to access a device, right? Like that, that's generally a good policy because you know, it might not even like, what if it's a stolen device and they take it to this, this independent party and all of a sudden, they can access it because the manufacturer is required to allow you to have access to it, right? That That's number one, a concern. But I think even on the back end, you can still have um, those independent repair services and trust them when they're a well-respected independent repair service in a community. Uh, you don't necessarily need the, the, the password if the consumers can trust them. Now, that trust is a little tricky when it comes to data privacy, data security, because how do you know if they're getting your data and selling it on the dark web, right? Like that's not something that necessarily as a consumer, if I'm shopping around to find an independent repair service in my area and I might not be able to find information that they're doing that because nobody knows they're doing that, right? right? That's the tricky it's a byproduct. It's the byproduct. It's definitely tricky, but I, I, I think it's definitely something that I like the market being able to address and and it's tricky with data privacy, but generally speaking, you can have independent repair services. And if you're getting bad reviews online, it's like, okay, I'm not going to go to this service. Maybe I'll take it to the licensed vendor or I'll go to Apple who, or Microsoft or whoever is producing um, the equipment and, and actually go through their, their service that I know that they've attached credibility to. They've vetted this, this service. They, they've gone through and, and, done the trainings with them and worked with them to have that level of integrity that you would want with somebody who's accessing all your, your data. Cause like you say, you bring in a device and it's going to have 
all your your information on there. If it's something like a phone, there's a ton of information just inherently stored there. But a lot of our devices are collecting a lot of data on us these days. And I'm a tech optimist. I love it because the more data they collect, the better services I can get um, and the better products I can get. But there is vulnerabilities there. And I want to make sure the people that have access to that data should have access to it and aren't using it maliciously and selling it on the dark web or trying to, you know, make a quick buck off my data. I, you just remind me of all the folding screens I saw in January too. That was the big thing. Everybody wanted to take a slide screen and a folding screen. You know, Samsung's big on their folding screen. And I can only imagine. Why? I, 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 I don't want to rip on a product. That's not the point of this, but like, but just people, give me the single sometimes screen Sometimes people like a, a, the novelty. I mean, they, I, I, people that have them seem to be happy, even though I did ask somebody how often they actually unfold their I'm waiting well, for the Razer smartphone that's just a throwback to the original oh, yeah. Razer. I love my Razer. No, oh, it was, I, I, it was a classic. Mm-hmm. And everybody, when I was right. in like early high school, the, the Razer flip phone, that was the coolest Star thing Tech. in the world. Yeah. Loved my StarTac. And they're just, yeah. I, I promise you, they're going to bring some smartphones back just to get the nostalgia factor going. It, and it really does look more like you are on Star Trek where they're just talking into it, which is also very cool. Uh, so you mentioned, so we have a couple other states looking at this. Are they looking at it with the same kind of parameters as New York or are we getting back to just, it's okay to break your stuff? And I, I don't know for sure where the states are going to go. I think that's actually the interesting question. I think we've already seen Apple Samsung respond to the New York law. They're starting to sell um, the, the part assemblies to, to vendors. They're starting to implement features that are going to comply with the new york law and i'm curious to see if states see that because they're probably going to apply this across the country right they're not just going to do this in new york because why would i have separate programs let's just have one program it'll save us in the long run to just to have the single program so there might not be as strong of a desire on the consumer tech side to um, actually pass some of these laws so i think we're going to see a lot of legislative action this session um, but It'll be interesting to see how much the New York law impacts those efforts, right? Because it's one of those things where we're going to start seeing changes pretty quickly. It obviously didn't go as far as some of the right to repair advocates would have liked. Um, but some of the right to repair advocates wanted those individual parts, right? And they want more access to the to the manuals and the and the devices, so that way we can have more competition in their repair services. But um, I think it it was a pretty interesting balance. And I say this as somebody who likes right to repair. I'm a fan of, of having consumers um, have more choices uh, when you're not infringing on the rights of the, the original equipment manufacturer. You're you know, not forcing them to comply with, with things that are actually going to harm the consumer or add additional costs. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see kind of how the states respond. And, you know, we'll probably still see some movement at least on the agriculture side. I know John Deere made that agreement, but I don't think uh, it's been universally applauded by some of the right to repair advocates. So there might still be more uh, action on that front just because again, that's, you know, not in any kind of law, that's just a a voluntary agreement. So I'm really curious to kind of see how that fallout plays. Um, I don't have any strong opinions on it. I'm just curious as, as you know, somebody following the debate to see kind of where States go on, on some of these issues. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, you also mentioned Spectrum. So should we expecting to see a lot of, there's a lot going on in that space this year. Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. No. Uh, so Spectrum is going to be a big topic this year for sure. Um, for those listening, I'm sure they're already following the debate to some degree, but we're talking about radio spectrum. Um, and what we're talking about with radio spectrum is just the rights to operate a device at a given frequency, time, location, right? Um, a lot of our spectrum we need for 5g networks. We need for, you know, unlicensed home networks, a lot of it's occupied by government users and we're trying to figure out how to free up additional bandwidth. So more, 
uh, commercial uses can come into play. Uh, a big part of this is going to be the spectrum reauthorization. That's coming up in the, in the next month. Basically, the FCC needs authority to actually go out and auction licenses, which is the best way of um, allocating those rights. Uh, but it's kind of becoming a contentious debate and we're going to see kind of how that plays out in the long run. Um, but that's definitely going to be a topic, uh, and, and how are we going to free up additional government use, uh, of spectrum? Because if we don't, we're going to kind of get hit a stalling pattern. Um, so it's a really tricky issue. That's definitely something we've got a lot of broadband deployment to do as well. So a lot happening on the telecom side of things, uh, over the next year, as you know, we spent a lot of money during the pandemic on on programs to deploy broadband. Now we're actually going to be doing it. So we got to make sure we do it right. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to looking to your future work and thank you for all that you've done so far. No, oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.